If you're in retail, you have situations where you want a customer to do something or a user to do something and situations where maybe you don't want them to do something. Maybe you'd like them to buy related products via an email promotion. Maybe you would not like them to only use your website once and then leave forever. Depending on those goals, you'll have to do something else to influence that action. You'll have to understand those customers. And as it turns out, artificial intelligence plays a role in, in the future of retail in terms of a deeper understanding of customers, kind of going beyond intuition. This week, we speak with Pedro Alves, uh, who is the CEO of a company called Opal in San Francisco. Pedro was previously the head of data science at a number of companies, in addition to being director of data science at Sentient Technologies, one of the, the best-known AI firms in the Bay Area. These sentient has raised upwards of $200 million and also kind of intersects with the retail domain. But now at Opal, uh, we talk with Pedro about sort of the future of retail, the future of understanding customers with artificial intelligence, essentially asking under what circumstances would a retailer need to go beyond intuition in order to kind of inform their understanding and their ability to influence the action of their customers or their users? What would be the cases where that would come in handy? Where is AI a useful tool? Um, and Pedro helps to go into some detail there. In addition to that, Pedro talks with us about what has to happen to AI as a technology to become more accessible and within reach to existing enterprises. Knowing now all the points of friction for bringing AI into an existing business, uh, he talks about the, the transition points that he thinks are going to have to happen over the course of the, the years ahead in order to make these technologies more accessible to companies. So I think there's two big takeaways here for business leaders tuned in. Whether you're in retail or not, going beyond intuition and finding commonalities of, and patterns uh, in terms of the, the behavior of users is something that, that's kind of relevant across the board. I imagine it would be relevant for insurance firms, for retail firms, for healthcare firms, you name it, that that general sort of capability of AI, I think, is going to be handy to understand for the business folks tuned in. And number two, having a grasp of what it's going to take to make AI accessible. This is a PhD here. Pedro is a PhD from Yale in computational biology. And he's kind of explaining from his perspective what it's going to take to make AI accessible to non-technical folks and really garner future adoption. So if you're wondering what are the transition points for this technology for me as a business leader to, to think about adopting it or to think about training my, my team to, to be able to use these tools, I think that a grasp of what will make it more accessible, I hope will make those decisions a bit easier. So without further ado, let's hop right in. This is Pedro with Opal and you are listening to AI in Industry. So Pedro, where I wanted to start off with you here is just talk about this, this concept of understanding your customers with artificial intelligence. I think the phrase is thrown around a lot, but exactly how it works, I think, is less common for folks. How do we find groups of, of maybe better buyers or worse buyers or people with similar behavior? If you could maybe just explain the fundamentals of kind of how this functions, it'd be useful to understand kind of how this, how this works just as a capability of AI. Yeah. So when you're thinking of traditional you know, models that you're building, right, you're thinking of, first of all, supervised and with that, there's this um, implication of you're thinking the model is going to understand how to predict something, how to classify something. So if you're doing customers in retail and you're saying, will this person purchase item X? Yes or no. Right. The model doesn't really need to understand the customer. It just needs to predict. It just needs to be accurate at predicting what's going to happen. So what we're talking about here is something different. The idea is, what if instead of training the model, 
on making a prediction. What if we train the model on trying to understand the intuitive choices that an expert would make when looking at these customers? So what I mean by that is, take for example, let's say you sell shoes online, Yep. right? And you have people in your company that they understand your customer base, they understand your products. They're not technical at all, but they just really understand who buys, why they buy, when they buy, et cetera, right? So a lot of the times you can ask them, hey, look, you know, tell me about these customers. You can show them a, a list of 10 customers and say, you know, uh, how would you pair these customers up or how would you find customers that are similar? And they would say, okay, customer X and customer Z are close to each other. And then if you ask them, why, what, what is that? Why is customer X closer to Z than, than any other two in this big list? They might not know exactly why. They might not be able to say, okay, it's because I look at their age and multiplied by the, you know, whatever, the, how much money they spent last month. And then yeah, fact- yeah, yeah. They don't have an algorithm in their head necessarily. Exactly. So what if we could just say, okay, we don't know what it is and you don't know what it is, but you have that gut intuition. You are the expert. What if we could train a model to basically try to understand and figure out what that intuition is? Once that model then understands that intuition, that model can start making those same choices. That model can start doing two things, actually. It can start making those selections the same way the the expert would, saying, oh yeah, X is really close to Z. But because the model's job is to understand the intuition, it not only can say X is close to Z like the expert can, but it can actually show you why or how those customers are similar. So you get these two benefits of, of this type of model and you know, you know what you can do with it is you can look at you know, the most basic form is just saying, show me similar customers. I mean, right yeah. there, there's the value of creating proper A-B tests, right? Every time you know, I talk to companies in retail, that, that's a major problem for them is how do you create proper A-B tests that are valuable? Because everything they do, improving the website, testing new uh, machine learning models, uh, promotions, Everything depends on proper A-B testing. So if the A-B testing is not done properly, then they're not going to make the right choices, which could be swinging their business up or down in a significant way. And so maybe we'll, so I, I like the example of, you know, we talked about, you know, selling clothing, selling shoes online. You mentioned that there might be folks who understand the customers in kind of a gut and intuition way, and we could start with that. What might this look like kind of in practice? I'm sort of wondering to myself, okay, I run an e-commerce business. I'm working with a vendor on the kind of customer understanding, customer clustering side of things. Would I have an expert or a set of experts kind of grab handfuls of people that we we feel with our gut kind of fit into a similar bucket of, let's say, super buyers or a similar bucket of, I don't know, holiday buyers or whatever the case may be, and then essentially ask a machine to find customers that have similar traits, locations, behavior, et cetera, and then just find more similar folks kind of almost in the kind of Facebook mirror audience idea in some way, shape or form. Is, is that is that what this looks like in real life or how does this go down? So without revealing too much about the technology, since we're still testing that. Just yeah, we don't have to get too crazy. Here. Customers, yeah. Theoretically. Yeah. Um, the, what it looks like is you'll have people that are not technical, uh, people that are technical in not data science or machine learning, but technical in in their field, whether it's selling insurance or or selling shoes or selling cars, they're going to be having a conversation with the AI. Um, That's literally what's happening. 
To the person, it's a pretty easy to have conversation because it's abstracted and pretty meta. To the machine, it's it's much more complicated, but it again, it abstracts all those layers. So the type of back and forth that a person is going to have with the machine is going to be something that I wouldn't even have to teach you anything. I could sit you down in front of RUI and say, here you go. Literally, you wouldn't need a single word out of me from, from instructions once you see the screen. Uh, and sound, the screen. Sound, sounding a lot like a vendor right now, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll hang with you. So, okay. So you're saying in an ideal world, you don't need any technical in-house data science talent to do this. You just have somebody who could select the right features, select the right commonalities um, without an understanding of, of data science or models. So that, that's kind of uh, the ideal to shoot for here. Yes and no. So okay. yes, for that conversation, for the model to actually absorb and understand that intuition, yes. The the part that you said, you know, you don't need any data scientist in the company. I disagree with that because oh, me somebody, too. Me oh, too, pal. Trust me. So go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so you still do need data scientists. What I think is changing is not oh you're not going to need data scientists anymore. I think what's going to change is where the data scientists are going to spend their time is going to shift and the overall picture of what a data scientist is, like their their background, their knowledge base, is also going to shift. But data scientists, for sure, are going to endure, you know, the next decade. It's just there's going to be a shift in what it means to be a data scientist. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, the data scientist lives will get easier when other maybe non-data science people can at least speak the language, right? At least understand the lingo and understand the value of data. Because I think a lot of data scientists get frustrated that they're speaking kind of Greek to to their team members sometimes. So hopefully that gap gets gets bridged too. I, I wanted to, to chat about some instances where maybe you've seen where companies have needed this kind of clustering and understanding, Pedro, in terms of you know instances in the real world. You know, you mentioned a clothing company online. Generally speaking, is the desire, the primary desire, hey, we need a good starting place for A-B tests? Is that, is that often the impetus to get into an AI level sort of product for, for customer clustering and customer understanding? Or what are the other kind of core needs that make somebody say, hey, we should get into this, you know, that get, get them into a conversation with companies like yours or whoever else is in this space? Yeah, sure. And, and first, just to clarify a little bit, it's not really clustering, uh, but you know, again, that would be okay, really okay. to talk about. Yeah, exactly. We'd have to get kind of technical. Okay, so clustering is yeah. the wrong word here. How how would you describe it? Um, I would I would explain it as a as an embedding, but if that's too technical of a term, it's it's a <laughs> mathematical representation of people of customers. Yep. Uh, that can be interpreted in like human language because we have basically. Because in the way of training, we're having that conversation with the person, there's going to be a translation learned between the math behind the representation of the customers and the language that people use so that when the user sees it, it can actually be expressed in, in something that a, a human would understand. To answer your question, yeah, I think A-B test was an obvious way of using this that a couple of customers had. I don't think it actually is going to end up being the biggest reason this is sold and the biggest value that this can bring. I think okay. the biggest selling point for this is if you can have this understanding, this, this uh, representation of your customers, right? You can, you can basically either look at where they, where the customers are, but also you can look at where they're going. So you can say, okay, map all my customers. And then I can understand, all right, in this, in this map of customers, right? Where are my customers that spend a lot of money 
at Christmas time. Oh, here they are. You know, and then you can say, well, you know, if I'm going to do a promotion at Christmas, you might want to say they're going to spend at Christmas no matter what. I'm going to spend my efforts in people that usually are not and have a chance of spending Christmas if I actually do something for them or you know, whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. If, okay. Okay. If you also understand the movement though, imagine this is not like a static map, but customers move and shift, right? They, they change their buying behavior in their website. They change, you know, what kind of customer they are. Yep. Yep. If you can start noticing that pattern that, you know, like migratory pattern of, of, of customers, those herds moving along the map, you can actually say, all right, you can ask, you can literally ask the software and say, okay, this group of people, they move from here to here, and that means they're going from not spending a lot to spending a lot. And this group of people, they go from medium spend to just dropping off completely. Tell me what's different between these groups. When a person changes direction, what is it that, you know, what, what happened? What trait changed? So yeah, then yeah, actually yeah. impacting that pattern and saying, how can I get these people that I think are going to move in this direction, which is stop using my website, into this direction, which is people that spend twice as much more. And once you start having that interaction that, you know, you, you just can have total understanding and control or not complete control because people are still people and they're going to do whatever they want, of course, yeah. but you at least can help influence where they're going. Right. Yeah. You can get beyond pure intuition as to what is leading to kind of losing users and what is leading to hyper engaging users. It's not talking to three people or talking to three dozen people and having anecdotes. It's, it's looking at the the data points of difference between group A and group B when they yeah. make that shift. And, and I could see how that would be handy um, for a system to be able to pick up on that. So it sounds like, you know, to sum up, and I, I do want to talk about the future. That'll be our last question, Pedro, to wrap up. But just to clarify this point, because I think it's important, kind of the direction you're going here, is that a lot of the time... Uh, A-B testing is, you know, it's, it's, it's one impetus to get into this tech, but it sounds like what you're talking about is retailers who want to understand a particular behavior. Maybe it's holiday purchasing, maybe it's big ticket purchasing, maybe it's churn. We want to know some, you know, what identifies people that do something we like or don't like as a company and how can we influence, you know, the results to, to garner kind of more of what we want. So maybe, get more people to purchase on the holidays rather than just the normal holiday purchasers. Maybe get get less people in a certain demographic to become lost customers after their first interaction with us because often maybe let's say we lose the older demographics. How can we lead them down a track that, that makes them uh, stick around? So it, it really starts with high-level business questions that maybe require more than intuition, prioritizing those, and then using AI kind of where there's the most leverage there. I mean, that's kind of what I was hearing, but I want to maybe get your sentiment on that. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And, you know, the, the applications are obviously to any company that has customers, right? It doesn't really matter what, what they're selling. But I agree with how you put it with, you know, this idea of understanding and then being able to act and, and it happening in real time and not these discrete projects and discrete uh, points in time. Yeah, and I, I imagine a company probably has to have enough, you know, enough, enough volume of customers to make something like this worthwhile. You know, if you have maybe, you know, 500 or, or 1,000 buyers a day, you may or may not need more than spreadsheets and intuition to, to make a stab at what's going to coax out holiday buyers. But if you have you know, tens of millions of purchases a year, or even millions of purchases a year, and, and maybe a whole lot of different demographic segments, it might kind of go beyond the pale of, of human expertise. So my guess is, at least for the time being, it's going to be retailers of at least a certain baseline size and, and volume of, of sales, if I'm not mistaken. 
I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. Because well, if you sell to small businesses, you're you're about uh, the weirdest vendor I've ever talked to. Because uh, almost everybody's targeting the enterprise, or, or at least the upside of the the midsize businesses. But let me know if I'm uh, if you guys are on a different track here. No, no, I'm not addressing which track we're on. I was just addressing like from a technical perspective. We're, you know, uh, I was trying to to you know understand if I'm trying to, to play this out in my head. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Techniques used. You know, would the actual techniques and algorithms work with a smaller data set from a smaller customer? I think yes. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going after them right now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Two separate <laughs> things. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right. So technical viability versus are we chasing them down? Yeah, because we might technically be able to do it, but they might not have the budget and they might not have the in-house data science talent if they're below a certain size. And for that reason, most vendors who you know, raise a certain amount of money aren't really chasing the smaller folks. But it sounds like, you know, you're the PhD here, not me. It sounds like you don't necessarily see it as inherently not able to drive value with smaller data sets. So, okay, worth noting and kind of a a point to list in my head here. Um, I wanted to get to our last question, Pedro, and I think that this is going to be an interesting one because you've kind of worked in arguably one of the bigger companies, you know, Sentient in in this kind of domain. You're obviously building a, a fast growing firm in this space now where retail is a big part of kind of where you're getting AI to hit the ground running. When you think about the future of retail in terms of understanding customers, where, when you think about how AI will affect the norms, so, sort of the way of doing business you know, a decade from now in terms of how, whether it's you know, some Macy's equivalent in the future, some you know, online clothing seller in the future, how they, how they understand their customers, what parts of what we've talked about today do you think are, are really going to become part of the norm of just how retail is done? What, what aspects of AI in terms of customer understanding will be just part of retail? So you said 10 years. I think there's, there's two aspects there. One is the growth of proper usage of AI. Right now, you know, it's still the, the techniques are there and they're wonderful. And if you do it right, great. We both know the majority of the cases, companies are struggling. They're not getting their ROI, yep. whether it's because they didn't hire the right people or because they, you know, there's like a million reasons. We'd be talking here for two hours. You bet. So I think the first step in that 10-year journey is making, you know, what I like to say is, you know, making AI something that's easy, cheap, and ubiquitous, right? I think as it progresses from easy, then it becomes cheap because once it's easy, a lot of people are going to be doing it. You're right. You're right. Once it's cheap, every company's going to get it finally, which is not there yet. And once every company gets it, it's ubiquitous. So I think the first step is that it's, for example, this use case that we talked about, getting every company, no matter how big or small, no matter how, what, what ability they have to hiring that top talent, forget about all that, that no longer becomes an issue. Every company can get it and use it properly. Uh, once that happens, then the next thing that's going to happen is what I'm really excited about. And it's really what I don't no, because my, my honest answer <laughs> yeah. is, look, as a species, we're very, very bad at predicting things very far out. True if you that. look at the early days of the computer, people, not uneducated people, people in the know, people that were educated saying the world will never need more than eight computers. And after the airplane was invented, people said this has no military applications, right? These were serious predictions from serious people. That's where we are with AI today. I really believe that. As much as we think to like to think we know where AI is going and we like to make these predictions, I think we're at that level of infancy because right now we're blinded by the cost and the expense and the difficulty yeah. of it 
So it, it puts blinders on our eyes and it doesn't let us really let our imagination fly. So what I'm excited about is there's three categories of problems that companies have right now. Category one are the difficult problems, the ones that they're struggling to solve with. I mean, I'm talking about AI problems, right? Yeah, the yeah, yeah. That they're trying to solve with, with the people they have or hiring people to solve. Uh, the second class are the impossible ones, the ones that, you know, some company says, we wish we could do stuff with computer vision, but there's no way we can hire, you know, a PhD in computer vision, deep learning. So we put that in the impossible bucket. We're not even going to try to do it. Yep. And then there's the third category, which is the unimaginable ones, which are the problems that only when the difficult and impossible become easy, are people going to start thinking, wait yep. a minute, we can put AI here, here, yeah. here, 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 in a million places that we don't even think about yet. And yeah. that's where 10 years from now, you know, retail, for example, is going to be. It's going to be using AI in places that I can't even tell you right now. It, well, yeah, I got to agree with you on that. I think I think we, we, we often will go with five. And, and even then, I think it's kind of egregious to, to make any hardcore predictions about what particular capabilities are going to be used. I like the takeaway, though. And you had three words in a row, Pedro, of cheap, easy, or, or do you say easy, cheap, ubiquitous? Easy, cheap, ubiquitous. So yeah, so easy, maybe we'll close on this because I think you have insights here. You're building a product and obviously have to be thinking about these things quite ardently here. Making AI easy, is that primarily a function of making these user interfaces more simple, about decreasing the amount of wizard skill from data scientists to kind of get a basic result on different kinds of use cases like recommendations or fraud detection or whatever? Um, what, does, what are the biggest barriers to, to easy to close on so that people can kind of see the benchmarks of what's going to make this move into the enterprise? I think easy has two big, big facets. One of them is time, the other is expertise, because, you know, somebody was asking me the other day, you know, what makes it hard? I would say, you know, washing a car doesn't take expertise. You don't have to go to school really to wash a car, but to wash a car really well and polish it and wax it still might take like five hours. Yeah, That's not easy. That's still kind of hard. So the time component is one. Easy should be, you can wrap up a project in a couple of weeks, not three or four months. Yep. And the second component is expertise level. We need to lower that expertise level tremendously so that you know the people today that are using deep learning in industry are not the people that should be doing that. They're people that learn so much about deep learning. They should be working solely on developing new generation of deep learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just applying it. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like, I, I use the analogy sometimes, Pedro, we'll close on this. I just want to make sure the audience and I can understand what you're saying here. I use the analogy of marketing automation sometimes where, you know, maybe in 1999 to get an email system to kick off a message based on somebody clicking something or whatever, that sounded like magic, like black magic. And it was really probably pretty intense developers and programmers back in the day who were the ones actually building things that could do that. And they had to be the ones that used it. So it was the wizard skills people building and using that stuff. But if, if you look at today, anybody can set up a MailChimp account. And, and often those people have better marketing sense than the programmers. And they're going to do a better job using the tools. And the programmers can just be building more, more functionality. Do you think AI has to go through a similar leap where we can basically make things accessible to the less technically skilled folks so the technically skilled folks can, like you said, focus on their expertise instead of using the darn thing that they built and having to be the only user? Yeah, I think so. Huh. Yep. Well, we've, uh, we've got a somewhat of a long road ahead there, but I think in the next 10 years, we'll be looking at a totally different world. So fingers crossed that there's a lot of progress there and that, that uh, 
certainly retail shuffles its way forward. Pedro, that's all we have for time, but I'm glad that we had to have you on the program. So thanks so much for sharing your insights here on AI and industry. Thank you. It was fun chatting with you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.